0: John Stewart and Apple are splitting up, possibly over some China content. Mark Andreessen is rallying the techno optimists. Twitter is shrinking, according to some new data I just obtained. And let's go even deeper on misinformation coming out of the Middle East. All that and more right after this.
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay Off.
0: Welcome to Big Technology Podcast Friday edition, where we break down the news in our traditional cool-headed and nuanced format. John Roy is here with us once again. We just looked through the agenda of today's show. You're going to love it. We have a lot to cover, and it's great to have you back, John. Welcome to the show.
2: It's good to be back, but sad we had to cut out some of the news.
0: There's so much this week. Exactly. And we'll do a tech earnings show next week. So if you're here for tech earnings, you know, maybe stay tuned and hear what we have in store for you. But the big tech earnings show is coming next Friday. In the meantime, I got to say, Ranjan, I have been reading the Michael Lewis book on SBF and I and, like it. And? it's you. Wait, sorry. What was that? I like it. I mean, here's the thing. You like okay. it? <laughs> Look, it's all the problems that we identified with Michael Lewis journalistically are there. He's way too in favor of Sam. But it's actually pretty interesting. Like, it's a very interesting book. And you go through, I'm halfway done, and you go through these twists and turns in Sam li- Sam's life. And, you know, he's, he doesn't hit you over the head with it every moment. He had trouble with people. You could see this eventually reflected, you know, when, when FTX collapsed. Like, very carefully, like, lays out, and we'll see. The second half is important, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. But I'm learning a ton, both about SBF, but even more about the effective altruists. And Molly White was just on the show, and we talked about this effective altruist community that Sam Bankman Fried comes out of. I think they're obviously a force within the tech world right now. The uh, Dario Modi, who's the CEO of Anthropic, which is a big AI company that we talk about here, he's a member of this community. There's many, many more members of this effective altruist community all over the place and just digging into Sam's relationship with them and their bolstering of him and their way of thinking to me is absolutely worth the price of admission on the Michael Lewis book.
2: All right. Well, I started number goes up by Zeke Fox and it is a fantastic read. I highly recommend it. I'm about a, qu- a third of the way through right now, but, but Michael Lewis, I think to me and I'm very curious and we should definitely talk about this again once you're done is, is, are people going to walk away with the impression that you know he is a great writer? No one's ever questioned he's a great writer and a storyteller, but is his credibility as actual truth-telling journalist is that going to go away? Yeah,
0: it's changed? one of those books that's probably bad for the author, good for the reader. I mean, that's what I have to say. Yeah, and Molly White actually was fascinating breaking down the the effective altruist community on the podcast on Wednesday. And she, you know, you know, remember a couple months ago where we were wondering why there were all these AI letters coming out with, like, Dustin Moskovitz, who's an effective uh, yeah, altruist back then?
2: Uh, yep, yep, tracing the funding.
0: It, it turns out it's kind of... fabulous organizations. Wasn't, yeah, it wasn't regulatory capture, from my understanding. Now, having read the book and speaking with Molly, it's these folks are, like, dead set about saving lives in the future, she said, even if it costs in some cases lives in the present. I don't wanna say every one of them believes it, but some of the group does. And that's why they're so crazy about like the AI threat, even though it doesn't feel present to us right now. It just aligns with their ideology. And maybe some people are exploiting that and saying it would be great for regulatory capture also. But it's just a mind boggling thing once you get into this community.
2: I have a hard time even starting to grasp the idea again. Again, having worked on Wall Street The idea that I'm going to make as much money as I can as fast as possible, no matter the cost, and then maybe down the road, like people would say, I don't give to charity because I wanna make as much money as possible and then I'll give some away when I die. So this stuff is, to me, it's not new. It's just a kind of easy way to mask greed, which is fine if that's what you're into. We'll certainly talk about the techno-optimist manifesto very
0: soon. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Your experience on wall street, it is, I mean, I'm sure hearing this ideology, like apparently it, they didn't it, this fit it stuff, in. It just ins-
2: mirrors it. So it's, it's a, it's like a, that's what's always, that's what is always frustrating. I mean, I've written about this a lot that so much of the, what is communicated in the tech industry exactly mirrors culture on wall street in the two thousands. The only difference is there people were just honest about being self interested and greedy versus trying to kind of mask or cover it in terms like effective altruism
0: so okay and this will, just be
2: honest about who you yeah. are that's all i ask
0: well definitely and apparently like i mean in the michael lewis book you hear about these effective altruists like handing loans out and the interest is 50 percent on them and apparently like he goes into like you'd think they would be chill about money if they're all giving it away anyway but they're actually more intense than most people so it's just fascinating speaking of of companies that are more intense about money than others. I mean, Apple, all right? Right in the middle of the headlines again. This was late breaking news yesterday. Jon Stewart, who had this show on Apple TV called The Problem with Jon Stewart, which talks about the news, goes into politics all the time, really doesn't shy away from much. Uh, not going to be renewed. He's par- John Stewart and Apple are parting due to creative disagreements. This is from the New York Times. Mr. Stewart told members of his staff on Thursday that potential show topics related to China and artificial intelligence were causing concern among Apple executives. And now that partnership is done. I mean, it, it is interesting because we know that Apple had been sensitive about its relationship with China. That China has different rules than we have here in the U.S. in terms of the way that they manage the technology when it comes to Apple. But you know, to, to and, and and then Apple had also been very careful in terms of Apple TV trying to not anger China. But now it has this moment where it has this host, Jon Stewart, um, who wanted to talk about China, it seems like, and now we can't. I mean, what do you make of this whole situation? This whole situation has been very difficult for me because I was
2: a massive John Stewart fan through the 2000s when he was on The Daily Show. I, uh, I was very excited when he came back to Apple TV. I was like literally waiting for him to resurface and was always disappointed during the Trump years that he was not there as a leading voice. But myself, among others, did not really watch this show. Apparently only 40,000 unique households watched it uh, on average. The show did badly enough. This is according to The Bulwark that it was labeled Apple TV Plus's worst performing show of the second half of 2022. So it's it's tough because I don't know if it was the format, if it was just whatever it was, it did not catch fire. So then you combine that with the fact that, and I think this is a really important thing to think about is, how Apple has really kind of structured its media content strategy as the Ted Lasso company. You know, the Ted Lasso, feel good, not too controversial, maybe a little boundary pushing, but that's all they want to do. And they've done this very well, and it's been working you know, incredibly for them. It sells more Apple TV Plus subscriptions. It sells more devices. So they obviously don't want to ruin that and turn into any kind of semi-political organization. So, I mean, for them, it's almost a no-brainer, and I hate saying this and thinking about it, but when a show is doing that badly and it presents a very high risk, this is clearly what the direction is going to take. I'm a bit excited because I actually think it always felt like John Stewart was a little bit, I don't want to say caged, but just, you know, something had changed versus who he was before. So I'm actually excited to see where he goes and what he does with this.
0: I don't know. He felt a little bit out of touch to me after spending, you know, so much time away. It seems like he just lost the pulse. And also his show, I mean, he did some good segments. I mean, his interview, he did some interviews, uh, uh, with Bob Iger, one, that was, was terrific. Um, but his, his, um, his show was just poorly formatted. It just didn't flow in the yeah. way. It seemed too long. It was it droned on a bunch. Uh, it got too cute. It just got away from the format that made him funny, and he it wasn't no, I, I, as I agree funny that as out it of been touch. Mentioned.
2: I felt it as well. I definitely felt a on a lot of topics uh, that you know it had a very like mid-2010s where his mind would have been or where everyone's mind was and then things kept moving whether it w- even positions i agreed with him around zerp or crypto or where we kind of had similar end visions of what was going on i agree it could have been a bit of out of touch but but i think apple like what does this mean for mainstream media and now recognizing apple tv plus is a central part of mainstream media but when it's not even presented pretending to be a genuine news organization or very very openly kind of positioning themselves as safe and okay almost they're more disney right now than disney itself i think what's that going to do to mainstream content i think is yeah, I'm curious what you think of that.
0: I don't really see it even as safe and okay. I see it as a company that's bending the knee to China. And, you know, obviously easy decision to not uh, have Jon Stewart come uh, beyond anymore if the show wasn't doing well. But it is interesting that China is first and foremost in terms of the areas of disagreement there. And, you know, we know that Apple doesn't speak out about human rights in China, we, you know, but happy to do it elsewhere. Um, and we know that Apple will do what it can to please the Chinese Communist Party. Because so much of its business is there, I mean, twenty percent of sales is there, and a large part of its manufacturing is done there. And so, what I thought was most interesting was that this is happening in the shadow of this um, Belt and ton- Oh, sorry, the Belt and Road Forum that Xi Jinping yeah. held in China. So this is also from the New York Times. Um, with Putin by his side, Xi outlines his vision of a new world order. It says, the leaders of China and Russia hailed each other as old and dear friends. They took swipes at the United States, depicted themselves as building, and this is crucial here, a fairer, multipolar world, and they marveled at their country's deepening trust. Okay, to marvel at this multipolar world. So you have, you puts Apple in this very, very weird position. By the way, the people that were in attendance there Vladimir Putin, the president of Indonesia, the president of Serbia, the president, the prime minister of Egypt, the Pakistani prime minister, leaders of Sri Lanka, the Republic of Congo and Nigeria. Right. This is what Xi Jinping is setting up as a counterweight to the United States in the world. And it just leaves Apple in an awkward position because it is obviously so reliant on China. And China is setting itself up as a check and almost in opposition to the U.S., building its power, taking those photos that look exactly like the ones that you see in the G8, where it's like the U.S. and Canada and, and Britain and France, and they're doing the same thing in China. And that means, you know, there's going to be, if it's a multipolar world, there's going to be some pulling apart. And who's in the middle when that, you know, when that's pulled apart? I, I, can, I, I We. Can, I, I agree, and I think we could.
2: I could spend hours d- discussing, uh, as a former po- political science major in college, and someone who's read a lot about this, and I do think Apple is... Every business is going to have to start kind of taking these considerations. Tesla, in their recent earnings call, the Chinese market definitely came up. Every single retail company, luxury goods. Um, all of these companies are definitely going to be caught right in the middle of this. But on, on a slightly lighter note, and I've been wanting to kind of throw this out, when it comes to, because with Apple TV Plus on the, uh, on the table here, have you watched any of the Lionel Messi games? Are you an Are you an Apple TV Plus subscriber and or an MLS uh, add on subscriber? I'm
0: in and out on Apple TV Plus, and I haven't watched any. Trust me, I watch enough sports uh, as it is that I just can't get into football or American soccer. Uh, okay, it would so, really so be the a end a, of me. Like I would get divorced as within a ten huge minutes. Huge
2: soccer fan. Yeah. as a massive soccer fan, it is amazing, and I don't how brilliant the Messi move was. Because for context, and this has been reported, Lionel Messi gets a cut of every Apple TV Plus subscription or every MLS add-on. So this was worked into the contract. And then he came in and just, I mean, some of the, like his very first game in uh, injury time makes a free kick to win the game. Like el- I saw. one after yes. the other. It, w- it was incredible. And it brought, it, everyone I know starts talking about this, starts subscribing. So, So I actually think like, Apple, again, as a reminder, and this is actually, you know, it, it feeds into this Jon Stewart topic very well, how well they're able to kind of structure their contract and their businesses with the talent and, you know, like invest in the talent and actually make the economics of the service relate to the talent itself. It's it's very interesting what they're doing. So. I don't know. I think uh, this whole space, we've talked a lot about streaming, is going to be a tough business. Um, I think uh, Apple TV Plus is not in a bad situation right now.
0: I guess, like your perspective, is just let G uh, dictate your content slate and you're in good shape.
2: I mean, he's already doing that. Have you, <laughs> Disney is. Disney uh,
0: has the same thing going yeah. on. It is interesting, and though. You fashion, talk about these live sports. Well. And yeah. Netflix reported earnings this week. Just as a side note, they reported earnings. They um, they beat on subscribers at eight million new subscribers. It's the biggest jump since 2020, and uh, they are raising prices. Wall Street loved it, sent the revenue up. Um, but they, you know, it was kind of interesting thinking about it. Where Apple has their sports package with the MLS, Amazon has their sports package with the NFL. Netflix has the quarterback the documentary. I mean, it's nice to know about Kirk Cousins' personal life, but. Yeah, no, it, it seems like Net-
2: Netflix basically brought F one to the U S. Like the entire documentary series around F one, uh, Formula One. Like it's it's that drove popularity, and they could have if they had started moving into these areas earlier, they could have before it became this popular, been the center point to the center channel of this sport in the United States. So yeah, I agree. I think uh, it's a huge missed opportunity for Netflix. How long till... I
0: think they're going to... How long till they go after sports rights? I
2: I think pretty soon. But the thing is, like which sport and where? Because again, the NFL has already chopped itself out for the Thursday or Sunday or Monday. Don't you think it's the NBA? Is there something...
0: It's going to be the NBA.
2: All right. Yeah. Netflix and the NBA. That that's an
0: optimistic take.
2: Yeah.
0: That's my thought. Okay. So Mark Andreessen this week came out with a post, very long post, 5,000 words. It's called the Techno Optimist Manifesto. And it goes deeply into, effectively, it's a case for um, why we should celebrate tech, why we should allow tech to grow without any guardrails, um, why the people who are getting in the way of tech are getting in the way of humanity's progress, and basically it's time to build. Um, did you read this post? I'm curious what you came away. It made, made a big stir. I feel like people weren't 100% sure what to make of it, I mean, but it basically with almost everything Andreessen does, there was like half of a group celebrating it and half a group criticizing it. What's your nuanced take on the techno-optimist manifesto?
2: My nuanced take is I did not read it in its entirety. I started to... I did not
0: complete it. Did you finish reading it or? No. Okay. So here's the thing. I read a lot of it, uh, probably more than half, but then I just could not finish it. And it just, it was kind of mind numbing trying to read it because it. if anyone who's, if you haven't read it yet, it's just kind of like a bunch of tweets strung together. It seems like 5,000 words of tweets. I feel like half the sentences start with, we believe It was just extremely difficult Imagine if it was a
2: Twitter thread that started with 1 slash 534. Yeah, that's what it felt like. That's what it felt like. And it's interesting because
0: like Andreessen is kind of talking a lot about how um, basically like we need to celebrate tech and not get in its way and it's only going to lead to human progress. And then there was this post from Ezra Klein uh, talking about how effectively... um, it was interesting to watch Mark Andre. Okay, here it is. There's no starker proof of McLuhan's the medium is the message thesis than the way the medium of Twitter has colonized the way Mark Andreessen thinks and inspre- expresses these thoughts. That he seemed totally unaware of this and his tech opti- optimist manifesto repeatedly states that humans are the masters of their technologies and there is no way in the technologies have become the masters of their humans only sharpens the lesson. I mean, it really did feel like I like reading Mark Andreessen. I like listening to him. I think he's brilliant, um, and even if I don't agree with everything he has to say, I feel like it's worth listening to. But watching him spit this thing out was just quite yeah, surprising. I like
2: read. I like reading Mark Andreessen when he talks about technology itself, not technology vis a vis society, its role in democracy, in the future of humanity. When it's simply about here's what I think is happening about. A.I. stacks going into the future or whatever else it is. But to me, and this has come up a lot over the last couple of years, especially with margins, because we're always like we're skeptical about a lot of technology. But we're both uh, John and me, my uh, who writes with me, we're very, very positive and lovers of technology. And like like we. Everything get I get excited all day long about trying different services and apps and gadgets or whatever else it is. I'm obsessive about it, but the thing with Mark Andreessen and it's very clearly outlined in this uh, piece. It's technology in the way that I express it or in the way that my my circle and I want to like express our views our models around technology and there's a lot of kind of inconsistency in it because there's a whole line around like monopolies and regulatory capture are bad however dominating markets to the point of monopoly is something that's been core to many of the companies that mark Andreessen has run or i mean invested in and, and you know like been a cheerleader of so i think it's very clear that it's like this is not about should you be excited about the next iPhone? Or should you be excited about whether augmented reality in the Vision Pro or Facebook's helmet does well and changes the way we can all use technology or agricultural AI can actually feed more of the world. No one is arguing against that. It's simply that maybe a very small group of venture capitalists located in one place who are all friends with each other should not dominate the entire ecosystem and claim it as their own versus making people who think differently and approach technology differently accessible for everyone. I think that's... As you can tell, this is something that I've thought about a lot.
0: Right. And I I agree. Like, I agree with a lot of the central points that Andreessen is making. I mean, I've written about them. This has been in Big Technology, even published about in the Boston Globe. Like, here's the beginning. We are told that technology is taking our jobs, reduces our wages, increases inequality, threatens our health. Ruins the environment, degrades our society, corrupts our children, impairs humanity, threatens our future, and is ever on the verge of ruining everything. I mean, I've written about the fact that, like AI, you know, you know, these hysterias about AI taking our jobs, like they they just do not materialize in the no, way but you, that a lot you, of the critics. You happen. shouldn't
2: even have to. You but shouldn't even is, have to answer to that. Of course, the we are being told is already get turning and and as you said, your point around the Ezra Klein kind mm-hmm. of Twitter hive like Twitter mindset you don't need to say that. Like some people are saying that and some people don't say that. It's like, I mean, it's not that we are being told. It's that some people make certain nuanced points around how, you know, inequality is increasing or certain jobs are being taken. But it's not some that the entire world is against Mark Andreessen uh, and technology and trying to push this. But to me, the more interesting part about this was I had this weird flashback where if it was summer of 2020, I would have been really, really interested in this piece and the debate. It had a COVID feel to it, like a pandemic era. Dude, I came
0: away with the same thing. I was just like, this reads like COVID broke his brain.
2: Yeah, no, it it, it feels like we're still in the pandemic, and and I would have been very into this and the surrounding debate, and I would have spent hours analyzing every think piece and response to it because I would have been locked inside. It's it, it, we've moved on, and that that's actually the more interesting part. Like, is is he um, and who else? I always wonder this. Is still in pure COVID brain because that's what this read like for me.
0: Okay, so um, let's just talk about one more part of that. And then I want to go to Max Reed's response to it. So this was the thing that caught everybody's attention. It was his enemies section. Um, He goes, we have enemies. Our enemies are not bad people, but rather bad ideas. By the way, it's just kind of crazy to call, I mean, bad ideas, enemies. Like enemies are people usually. Our present society, and sorry, that was me. Let me get back to Andreessen. Our present society has been subjected to a mass uh, demoralization campaign for six decades against technology and against life. Under varying names like existential risk, sustainability, ESG, sustainable development goals, social responsibility, stakeholder capitalism, precautionary principle, trust and safety, tech ethics, risk management, degrowth, and the limits of growth. The demoralization campaign is based on uh, bad ideas of the past, zombie ideas, many derived from communism, disastrous then and now that refuse to die. It does seem, Ranjan, like he's speaking directly to you. I mean, yes,
2: (laughs) the thing that what makes this so ridiculous is like you can have problems with the UN sustainable development goals as defined by the United Nations, which is where that term comes from. But the term sustainability, when he's talking about technology feeding humanity and coming up with new novel solutions. That is sustainability when you're talking about risk management to grow to group that into uh again any of these other terms risk management do we not want that in companies do we not co- want companies like it it's one of the it's just a reminder that again going back to the covid mind, all of these things get grouped in very oddly for him in like really targeted personal ways versus the idea that as in quotes, risk space management, end quote, is a enemy of you and your business and people and it's going to hurt humanity is just weird to me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like SBF would agree with him. Oh, yeah. Okay. And look at what a beautiful business
2: that is. Definitely risk to. management was yeah. an, a massive enemy of enemy. Sam Bankman-Fried and exactly. he vanquished that enemy and he never that enemy never stepped foot in his his operations ever again. Well, you know Michael That's Lewis got certain.
0: that right. So um yep. one of the responses that I did want to read and go through was uh from Max Reed um who has a newsletter on Substack called read Max. I thought it was a very interesting response to it. Um, so first of all, uh, I'm going to read part of it, but this is a parental guidance moment. So if you, have, uh, if you have kids who are listening, maybe it's a good time to pause and return because anyway, I'm just going to go on. I've made the warning. Okay. So Max talks about, uh, I'm just going to read the beginning. I would say the, my main question about the techno-optimist manifesto and essay by the prominent venture capitalist Mark Andreessen is whether or not the GOATSEE was intentional. The manifesto published to the website of Andreessen's Fund A16Z Monday. It currently occupies the entire front page of the fund site. Oh, by the way, Ranjan, did you see this? It's the whole webpage of A sixteen Z is this manifesto. Uh, you go to A16Z.com, am, all you see is this manifesto. Uh,
2: I am laughing a lot in the background and trying to mute myself. So it's not coming through and dominating the sound right now.
0: Okay. So he says it was originally accompanied by the following digital illustration, which many readers will recognize immediately. And if you're listening, the, the illustration is, um, basically some news clips in the corners and then a big orange circuit board and then two disembodied hands pulling a light, put it, pulling the middle apart with like a light shining through. Uh, Pulling a hole apart in the middle, the two yes. hands. Yes. Okay. Look familiar? Uh, all right. So, uh, I mean, this is I'm going to try to get through this part. Okay. Does this image of a cyber sphincter pulled apart by the two strong hands revealing a pixelated heaven inside look familiar? Uh, did Mark Andreessen, a man who certainly would like to be known as a funny online guy, familiar with the folk ways of the internet was he able to cut it uh, able to cut it up with regular shit posters on e streets mean for his grand statement uh, okay did he mean for his grand statement of purpose to be illustrated by the abstract version of the internet's most famous and beloved shock image okay this shock image i just recently learned about this by the way i guess i've been living under a rock wait you just learned within about within the Goatsy? past year apparently Goatsy, uh, okay for those at home Goatsy uh, is an image uh, are
2: you going to are, are you going to say it <laughs> Yeah, should I'm going to say it. We,
0: I feel like people right, should say, know what say. it is so they understand. Like, I,
2: I always go with the, my, my Goatsy philosophy is always a casual, go look it up, make sure no one else is around, but I'm ready for it I've never even seen you. the
0: image. I still haven't seen the image. I'm not looking oh, at the image. Oh, all
2: right. Oh, you got to look at the image, but anyways. <laughs> okay.
0: Continue, continue. What, what Goatsy is, is it's two hands pulling the part. The, oh. the, 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 I don't even know how to say it. <laughs> The back end of a human being and it's a photo of it and it's apparently very disgusting and stretched out and so that's exactly Horrifying. what mark Andreessen's story art looks like for this um techno optimist post and so now max reed is trying to figure out whether this was intentional he goes and by the way everybody saw it and was originally immediately like that to go to even i who didn't has never seen the image knew exactly what this was and he goes uh s- sadly probably not the image has since been changed the hands are moved the resemblance gone it's too bad because before it was swapped out, the goatsey was about the only surprising or intriguing component of Andreessen's manifesto. Okay. So now that we've gotten past that
2: uh, <laughs> All right, we made it through, right. listeners. We we made it through the Goatsey segment. I mean it was that just so crazy the, to see it illustrated that likely way. Likely and hopefully the only goatsey segment. For the rest of 2023. Yeah, we're
0: not touching on that ever again.
2: Maybe 2024. We'll, we'll see, see how things
0: I, go. If you are a legendary VC and you illustrate your post like that, then we will talk about it. Um, but what Max goes on to talks about, talk about is in 2020, this is, like you said, it's a it's a um, redo of time to build. It's time to build, which was during COVID. And we had all these societal problems. And Mark Andreessen was telling us, okay, build our way out of it, Right. And so, you know, this is what Max says. He goes, what are you building? One reason that three and a half years later, Andreessen is reiterating that it's time to build instead of writing posts called, here's what I built during the building time I previously announced was commencing is that Mark Andreessen has really not built much of anything. In the years since he's determined that it was time to build, his fund invested tens of millions of dollars in a video game Ponzi scheme that immiserated its players and a company that sells blockchain transaction records said to reflect ownership of Ape Cartoons. To me, what really stuck out for me, and I think we can move off of this uh, after this, but what really stuck out is this, the, the push by Andreessen Horowitz to make Web3 happen. And like Molly said, on the podcast on Wednesday than to subsequently reportedly cash out a lot of those tokens and leave the retail investor holding the bag without building some of the crucial things that Mark Andreessen talked about us, us needing. That is something that you can't quickly talk away. That's not something that quickly goes away from your venture capital firm. And that's not something that people are going to likely forget anytime in the near to mid-future. And it's obviously you know something that, like like you said, maybe beforehand, before all this craziness, you know, we would have paid a lot more attention, but it just seems to show you know, how how seriously the the um, cachet that this firm has has had has degraded over these past years. And Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I'm sure reasonable no, people to, can to see me, it differently, but but that's that was my takeaway.
2: Yeah, to me, it's trying to do this again. The it's time to build. Had an incredible amount of energy behind it. Everyone was, you know, let, let's do this. Let's this is the right direction. Let's really rebuild infrastructure in the United States. Let's try to uh, set ourselves up for the future. And as you said, when uh, what was the token for the video game called again? It was like Smooth Love Potion. Uh, I mean, there was yeah. So it was called SL, SLP coins, smooth mm-hmm. Lo- in a coin called Smooth Love Potion. That then, you know, uh, as you said, fleeced retail out of a lot of money. But the other thing, again, like all of these kind of. There's so much in this manifesto, at least in the early parts that I read around how government is the enemy, regulatory capture uh, over like uh, uh, the private sector being run by the public sector is the enemy. Whereas A16Z is moving more into defense tech, which is good. And if there's a lot of money to be made and, you know, a lot of uh, like it's an opportunity, but that's directly contracting with the government and uh the public sector so there's just inconsistencies in all of this that are hard to reconcile but
0: it's an interesting post i mean i i don't know kind of think that like i'd rather have people write what they have on their mind and read them like a lot of people were killing the writing and yeah the writing made it difficult to get through the whole thing but i'm also just like i guess you can write it the way that you feel like
2: just just it's time to get an editor. That's all I say. No, I disagree. Just get an editor. Write the way that get you an feel, editor.
0: but write better stuff. I don't know. I just uh I guess it is an, in just an interesting moment. I th- Andreessen Horowitz is one of the most fascinating stories because they've been right about so much and they are so smart and Andreessen is like a standalone personality in the tech industry. They've done a lot of good, um but they they're they're searching for it seems like a, a second act or trying to ride a wave of, you know, interesting forces and not quite sure where it's going to go. And we'll see what happens. But they do make the LPs happy. So there's that. Okay. After the break, we're going to talk a little bit about the new data that I have from Twitter. And then after this topic, we are going to talk about the Middle East, which I'm sure will be less controversial. Back right after this.
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA.
2: We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the
0: lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast Friday edition. Ranjan Roy, Ranjan of Margins. You can get it at readmargins.com. Okay, Ranjan, so first of all, Elon Musk started to run a test that you can pay a dollar. Uh, or He's in a, a couple of markets that you'll be paying a dollar To use Twitter. Um, I initially was like, oh, this is actually a good idea because it will weed out the bots. But then I thought, oh man, like maybe this will actually cause even further degradation of Twitter's user base. What's your read on the the dollar plan?
2: It's funny because this is exactly the type of system that I had Like advocated for back in 2017. Again, some small payment just to verify, just to, you know, like add some kind of incentive or monetary connection to the platform. And again, it's a dream for a platform. Once you have that credit card connected, then actually upselling on different types of services or even e commerce, it could present a huge opportunity. It's just funny that. Now that everything is framed in, you are giving Elon Musk one dollar. The entire equation changes, and I can imagine it's just not going to work.
0: Wait, but um, you're agreeing with Elon on the idea in principle.
2: Yeah, no, I think. Okay, our I, listeners I are think, their
0: heads are going to explode, man. This is your like first moment hey, of kumbaya with Elon in months.
2: I'm saying it's the right idea, wrong execution. But but if you think about it, because something minimal enough where it does not exclude a massive proportion of the population. Obviously, you would still need some level of free service associated with it. But just you know, creating a paid level around the most basic parts of the service, it just makes it so it's not bad actors can't build entire bots of our you know armies of bots without at least having to pay for that if they're going to but i think uh yeah it's it's the right idea right direction i just don't think it's going to work or happen and it's certainly it's it's a starting point for a business that was already in a good and strong place to try to build this thing or to build it from the beginning like potentially a blue sky or someone should maybe go down this road but i think At Twitter's level with the debt like what interest payments are going to have to try to come up with the cash for, this is definitely not going to solve the problem on that side. And and if you think about it, Snap, again, we've talked about this in the past, Snapchat Plus is at 5 million subscribers. And you know it works because it's just in an, it's through Apple. They're paying the Apple tax. It's three ninety nine dollars a month. But clearly it's a very and that's per month, not a year. The, the Twitter proposal is $1 a year but you already have 5 million people. So really kind of like low-level payments on a recurring basis, whether that's a month, whether that's a year, I think that's the direction platforms are going to be going, and I think it's the right one.
0: Right. And it's kind of interesting because it comes at the one-year anniversary mark of, of Elon taking over Twitter. On October 26th, I believe, 2022, Elon walked into Twitter headquarters, then Twitter headquarters with a sink. So, uh, we're almost at the anniversary now. He took over the company on the 28th. What's happened in the year since? I got some new data from Aptopia. Um, and we found that uh, Twitter has lost 13% of its users. So, they, they approximate that the, esti- the estimated daily active users have gone from 140 million every day to 120 million. And it really accelerated around the rebrand. We had months of Twitter losing. Uh, daily active users more than 5% uh, month over month uh, in August and September after the rebrand and negative reviews went up 2,000% there. So, okay, so you see that and you're like, all right, that actually seems like Elon's lost less than you'd imagine given um, a lot of the, the hand-wringing about his use of of the platform. Obviously, it's still a pretty powerful platform. Some other data that the daily active minutes per, per user is about... Consistent and power users are still making up the vast majority of the time spent on the platform. So obviously, like work to do, it's shrinking under Musk. It's not shrinking, you know, it's not having. It's still relevant and it still will have staying power. The interesting thing that I saw in the data that really stuck out to me was how how Threads is doing compared to Twitter. Threads was, uh, first of all, only about 10% of Twitter users have tried Threads and Threads was... um, 10%
2: of Facebook users.
0: No, no, 10% of Twitter Twitter users. users. So you have 90% of people who are predisposed to this type of product who haven't even signed up for Threads. And it went from around, uh, you know, above 20 minutes per set per day on the app at its launch to under five minutes per day now, where Twitter's like around 15%. So clearly Threads isn't catching on. To me, this just kind of signals that this need for people to be in a short form app where news is breaking and they get to see everybody yell... You know, it was novel and it appealed to people and It certainly appeals to some percent of people. Uh, but by and large, this is not something the population wants, not on t- the, the, the broad uh, uh, population wants, maybe niche, but not broad. They don't want it on Twitter and they don't want it on threads. I don't think they want it on Blue Sky. They certainly don't want it on Mastodon and they don't want it on Substack Notes.
1: Yeah,
2: I think that was always, to me, again, I'm going to give... Elon credit on another one that a uh, premium subscription for Twitter power users giving more features was always the business model to me that you have in the hundreds of millions of users as the total addressable market who are excited, willing to use it on a daily basis, like any of us, uh, like you or me, I mean, like, uh, so easily being willing to pay for things. And uh, I remember when they first, Paragon Crew first launched Twitter Blue and I was actually a happy subscriber to get bookmarked folders and, uh, and even the undo tweet feature where you can, it basically just didn't post it for eight seconds or 10 seconds or whatever. Like I think that was always the real opportunity or taking all the Twitter firehose data and selling it and packaging it to hedge funds or other social media marketing, uh, monitoring companies. Like these, these are all the things that Twitter would kind of get into that I think they should have leaned more into. But again, th- the idea that they were ever going to grow the average Twitter user or the everyday in the d- daily active user to hundreds of millions or billions never really made sense to me. And now again, once it becomes, once the platform itself is degraded once it gets inextricably tied to elon musk you kill any chance of that
0: right okay so let's go one level deeper and talk about how um frustrating of an experience it can be to follow the news on a platform uh like a twitter like a threads even um and that is what's happening in the middle east this week i i mean over the past few weeks last week i was here on the show and said that a few things first of all I said um, they should separate from news I I think I'm going to rephrase that obviously news is going to be a core part of any platform like this that will give you up to the minute information in short text bursts so for news organizations to completely go away may not be wise simply because you want to have good actors um, who are uh, steering the conversation and um, you know, putting their analysis in the feeds. That being said, to fully embrace and go whole hog on the feeds is, I think, a little bit too much. Like, you you know, these feeds will never be the main way you reach your audience. They'll never be the main way that you build an audience. They'll never be the main way that you gather news. And so that's why I think there should be a little bit of distance between news organizations and social media platforms. I also said that it, I found it pretty I also said I found it pretty um, easy to follow or or possible to follow the news on these feeds. And this week obviously proved that to be much more difficult than I anticipated. There was so much misinformation flowing around Twitter about the, um, the hospital that was bombed in or the hospital parking lot that was bombed in Gaza, not only on Twitter, but within the mainstream news publications. I mean, places got it obviously wrong, you know, putting uh, headlines and images up there that seemed to indicate with certainty things that had happened that had not happened or were under dispute. Um, and, you know, I don't know necessarily whether uh, whether I have to fully revise it. I mean, I still was able to follow the discussion in real time and was able to make my own assessments, but it's certainly a lot messier this week than it was last week. I think you have to fully revise it, week. Alex. I think okay. it's time to fully revise it. Go ahead. It. Go ahead. Make the argument.
2: <laughs> okay. So... I rem- I was listening. I was uh, way last Friday, and I was listening, and I definitely heard that idea that Twitter is still the best place that to get breaking news and to try to keep up with it. I would say for people who are very active and open-minded and nuanced around it, it's still. I, I have been on Twitter in the last two weeks, probably more than I had in the past few months. But the, the, what really wor- what really really worries me about this is is two parts it's one as you said mainstream news organizations we all know every journalist still spends all their time on twitter so it makes them knee-jerk and the whole editorial process try to move potentially faster than it should be and we saw that with the hospital um, whatever happened and which is still not definitive. And it's clear that it's not definitive. What happened um, mm. is that the New York times posted a headline right away when they shouldn't have. And, and I, I feel in a previous era, editorial processes wouldn't have jumped the gun that quickly. So I think that's one side is that mainstream news organizations have to break away from the Twitter pace of breaking news. Like, and as much as they do want to be at that uh, pace and as much as each journalist is still processing things. Yeah. At oh, that, I uh, agree with that, that completely.
0: That's definitely point one. The first point that I made was that for sure. News, or, news institutions need to, you know, have a, a one or two degrees of separation from these feeds. They're extremely unhealthy for, for journalists to be on all the time, like you said.
2: All the time. But that being yeah, said, but, but, I do
0: think that they're being in the feeds, are po- it's possible if you have discernment and news judgment to learn what's going on from them. Do you disagree yes with that? Yes
2: and no. Yes and no. Because okay. I, I say this as someone who has spent a lot of time digging through, and I give myself some credit around being able to parse through information. But what I noticed that was really different about this versus the past, and this is where Elon's degradation of the platform really plays a role, is that the core economic structure of the platform is now one where anyone can get the blue check is incentivized to to for clicks and views to potentially be paid out that everything about the platform pushes bad actors to actually spread misinformation or more salacious information. Again, I mean, it almost became a joke that the belling cats of the world that really brought this interesting way. And for, for people unfamiliar, it's like, you know, using digital knowledge and data and understanding to be able to bring, you know, geo-located coordinates or other image analyses to verify information or debunk it. Now, literally my entire feed was like anyone with a blue check suddenly turned into an OSINT expert, like a a military expert. And it's just like all you would have to do is throw out random coordinates and say like, okay, I've verified here's a thread and people will click on it. So I think when the entire platform is now incentivized for anyone to get a blue check, pay eight bucks a month and then make themselves uh, available be allowed to be paid off of that, all incentives point towards spreading misinformation versus in the past. The blue check was still around verification by the platform, however opaque that process was. So anyone on there, there's that had nothing to do with how much money you could or could not make on the platform. In fact, you couldn't make any money on the platform. So the only real incentive was to build trust and following. So it, it, it scared me, it scares me right now. Like if this is happening, one week into this conflict two weeks into this conflict where this can go and how much worse it can get as long as this is still knowing this is still the central place where news starts um i don't know it's it's a little bit terrifying
0: i mean you're right that is the the supply side i would say demand side it's a little different like demand side if you're using it as a user i think you can still get a lot out of it and it's a useful tool however like you know, I'm starting to question the merits of being in there so often, like maybe it is better to just wait and read it on news sites, you know, because it's just, it is, it is, um, it's, it's not as much for me, the misinformation, it's more of like the partisanship. And everybody's like out there just like yelling their talking points and, you know, skewing the information in the way that conforms with their agenda. And that drives me nuts. And I actually, I put a thread about this uh, this week. I guess it was also You're a, a tweet. I did it. No, not threaded. I put a. I did a thread about it. Um, Wait, a Twitter thread or a, a thread Facebook post? Thread. Facebook and I put on both platforms. Anyway. Okay. Okay. Just I check. said basically like it was. It's
2: frustrating. This my, this to me. my weekly check in to make sure you have threaded.
0: Yeah, it's frustrating yeah. to me because what I'm seeing is there's so many people are on these platforms. The whole dialogue is they did this and they did that and they're bad and they're worse and can you believe it? it just drove me nuts and i think that one of the key things that i i put out there was that like maybe instead of just talking about the problem all the time we should speak about the solutions even if it doesn't fit in the feed like no one's talking about solution and it's just an it's embarrassing i think the state Wait,
2: right. what do you mean solutions in this case
0: to this conflict
2: i that that's a tough one i feel in terms of again yeah twitter think about short this. form think about this short form metrics driven content yeah. is not where no anyone is going to have but how much podcasts however yeah, yeah
0: we can do it i mean how much energy is being put to splitting people apart versus bringing them together and maybe that's me being naive but it's just absurd no but that's where that's again what i'm saying
2: all incentives of the platform. Are around doing exactly that right now. If you want to make money on the platform, that's the easiest way to do it. And it's the best thing you can do. Like it's the, if you're, it's like the Macedonian teenagers in 2016 with Facebook pages. Now the economic incentives point towards that, which they didn't before. So that's why I think this is going to get a lot worse before it gets better.
0: Right. And I, I wrote this in our document, but this is almost like the anti soundbite war. It's so frustrating because it's impossible to put. Uh, any anything into a soundbite here because there's so many years of context that really that are important for every little bit of the situation that's happening and you know I just it's frustrating to me because like people are trying to shoehorn this into like 280 characters and be like you know this side is right because or that side is right because and it's like you know you have people in Gaza who don't like Hamas you have people in Israel who have been marching in droves to overthrow the government there. I mean, not not like with a coup, but like calling on the president to resign large portions or the prime minister resigns large portion of the country. And so like, it's just, it doesn't lend itself to social media. It really is frustrating. And,
2: well, no, but, and then think about this. I've seen so many people, I've talked to so many people who already you know, are like either the anti-Semitism or the Islamophobia is so apparent in all of the replies to anything I've said, of course, every bot army right now is going to be in there um, mixed with, Real people as well, but mm-hmm. the, the, it's like the easiest opportunity for any bad actor to just get everyone feeling like division is all there is. Because there's, again, both the geopolitical incentive, the economic incentive, everything is incentivizing, splitting people like that based on how the platform structured right now. And
0: Right. And it does, by the way, it spills over into newsrooms. And we just touched on this, but I think that mainstream newsrooms really did have been doing a terrible job. Uh covering this conflict so there's been some good but some of it's bad including folks that should know better um, you know people who might touch on covering dis- disinformation sharing clearly wrong numbers about numbers, numbers of casualties and not using that to walk back and not examining you know the roots of of why those numbers were shared and why they shared those numbers to me that just it's not good
2: Just don't tweet okay. about it that, that's the
0: lesson don't, don't, <laughs> don't tweet, tweet don't read twitter about Never that. I don't tweet. know it's tough Um, All right, last question. Should I go to Web Summit?
2: (laughs) Explain to listeners why that's a question.
0: So um, right now there's all these. So Web Summit is one of the biggest tech conferences in the world. And um, it's in Lisbon every year. I go almost every year. And um, Patty Cosgrave, who uh, runs the thing, and I know him, um, made a bunch of statements about this conflict um, you know, basically winking at the fact that Israel's is committing war crimes without naming any specific war crimes, and also just, um, I think, tweeting somewhat insensitively on October 7th before any of the bodies in Israel were really cold. Um, okay, I'm just going to say it because it's important to draw it out. After the Israelis were, were massacred on that day, he published a chart, or tweeted a chart that showed the differences between Israeli and Palestinian deaths um, in the conflict year by year. It's an accurate chart. It's a, it's a chart worth, uh, discussing and not worth ignoring, but to share that on the day, um, that so many innocents were killed gave the impression that it was like, well, this, they deserve this or like, you know, no big deal. I think that's what the impression was given. And lots of Israelis pulled out of the conference meta, uh, Oh, let's see. Oh, meta's out now. Um, Google is out now, Intel is out now, Siemens is out now. I mean, basically all of their, their key speakers um, have withdrawn. I'm struggling with this, to be honest. Um, I think people are entitled to make mistakes, and he did apologize. I don't know if what Patty did was he wasn't like, I mean, I've seen so many instances of, of worse on, you know, both people who support Israel support the Palestinians. Um with, who've, used, who've used worse language than he did, far worse, um, and it hasn't really. I, I guess I'm still planning to go. It, it didn't really come to the level for me that like it's you know worth having Web Summit destroyed over. Although like I understand where the concerns come from, but um, I don't know what to do. What do you think? I mean, for me,
2: the most the kind of odd. Uh, part of this whole story was I saw certain people saying because they t- took money from the Qatari oh, yeah. investment authority, that that's a reason to come out. And, and to me again, I mean, separate from, I think the, again, the topic of what people are posting and when this is where you had mentioned Apple in China and all the kind of like difficult decisions that's going to create for people. I mean, division fund, sorry, like, I mean, well, division funds through the Saudi Investment Authority, uh, like, you know, MBS and Saudi Arabian money in every venture capital fund or tech company. There's going to be more and more and more of these very, very complicated and messy connections and situations that I think yeah, none of these questions are going to be answered anytime soon and it's only going to get messier.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know Patty, so I think that's sort of, you know what's shaping this for me in some way and i i mean i also don't think that i mean i again like i think his statements were were bad and in poor taste but um no no, this is
2: where oh sorry
0: it just seems to me that to to have all these companies pull out over them is i don't know it's 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 bold Go ahead. No,
2: but I. Th- this is where to to bring it all back to John Stewart. Why I became such a John Stewart fan in the two thousands was I remember living here in New York in the post nine eleven era, especially in the buildup to the Iraq War. He was one of the only voices on any kind of network television, even though it's still cable, but like on any easily accessible television that actually was in a smart and I think that's where comedy was really important because he was able to get out the message that maybe this is not a good idea but do it with humor so people allowed it and listen to it but otherwise that message was just not allowed anywhere so I think uh, like uh, it, it reminded me like a lot of these kind of things that you can potentially see as a overreaction. I think that's where uh, John Stewart managed to thread the needle very well back in the day. In terms of like in a very heated environment, still trying to bring a nuanced view to uh, a very difficult situation. And
0: his context mattered, by the way. I mean, he was a New Yorker. This war was being yeah, fought. Yeah, I mean, in mm-hmm. terms
2: of nine eleven victims, I don't think there's been anyone who has taken the cause right. as much as John Stewart. Yeah,
0: and so like I think that he was stepping up and saying, effectively, like in my name, in the name of my city, like. I mean, obviously, it's the whole country that was involved, but, you know, he had some authority there. Paddy grew up in Ireland, of course, and Ireland has its own problem with terrorism groups. And he immediately uh, drew a line between the two. Unfortunately, it's just, you you know, it is not the same thing. You know, and I do think that's been a real problem in the U.S. where a lot of people are trying to put their like, you know, their context of how their political... Ideology works and just neatly fit it on top of what's going on uh, inside Israel and, and Gaza. It just doesn't work that way.
2: Yeah, but I, I was actually going to say I, I disagree that people are even trying because it's so convoluted and twisted and messy that, again, I don't think there's a way, uh, you know, like a, the far right, which side do they take in this uh this conflict, like I feel it's, it just, there's been so much complexity in all the different connections and where people stand in different ways that it's a reminder that again, this is all messy and complex and uh, people aren't able to only very limited. People are able to confirm all their priors in terms of what's going on.
0: Yeah, no doubt. At some point
2: it gets messier.
0: Um, That will do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, big tech earnings Uh, a lot on tap, including Amazon. So stay tuned for that. Okay. um, Who do we have on tap next week? Meredith Whitaker is the CEO of Signal is scheduled to come on next Wednesday. So that should be an interesting discussion. Maybe I'll go even deeper, the about the techno optimism with her. So if you like this conversation, stay tuned for that one. And that's going to do it for us here. So thank you, Ranjan. Thank you everybody for listening. And we'll see you next time on Big Technology Podcast.